Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 28, A Nobel Booming Business. In this episode, we examine chemical warfare of the 19th century and its effects. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Chemicals became a worldwide industry in the 19th century, so we now focus on a difficult topic, a subset of the chemical industry, that of weapons based on chemicals. In ancient days, we know of Greek fire and medieval tactics like pouring boiling oil over marauders and, late in the medieval period, the advent of gunpowder to literally propel giant rocks at high speed at buildings to destroy them, and the feudal system in the process. Let's not forget that physics and biology were used since ancient times as war methods as well, from catapulting boulders over ramparts, to burning other boats using the sun's light, to poisoning castles' wells. But this series is about chemistry. Gunpowder was adapted at the very end of the Middle Ages to be able to shoot bullets as well. But well into the modern period, that's pretty much where chemical weapons remained. The quality and reliability of gunpowder was improved, as we heard about Lavoisier and the traitor, Benjamin Thompson, but there weren't really any new chemicals for this use. And that began to change in 1845, with Christian Friedrich Schönbein, a German-Swiss chemist. Schönbein had already formulated the idea of a fuel cell, which I hope to discuss more when we get to the later 20th century. He also discovered the allotrope of oxygen called ozone. I mentioned an allotrope, a variant form of an element, in a previous episode with William Ramsey and his discovery of inert gases. So, usually oxygen is a diatomic molecule, O2, which makes up about 21% of the Earth's atmosphere. In 1839, Schönbein discovered another form of oxygen, O3, while performing electrolysis of water. Because the gas had a distinctive smell, he named it ozone, from Greek ozeine, to smell. So, to continue with warfare and oxygen. Let's go forward to 1845, and Schönbein was doing experiments at home, though his wife was unhappy with this. He accidentally spilled a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acids and grabbed his wife's cotton apron to mop up the mess. Then he hung the apron over the stove to dry. Suddenly, the apron ignited and burned almost to vanishing in a trice without smoke. Schoenbein, being a chemist, realized he had something of possible value on his hands as a smokeless replacement for gunpowder, which was well known to leave a thick black haze and smoke over a battlefield. While we will discuss polymers in future episodes, I will say briefly that cotton is primarily made of a long-chain organic molecule called cellulose, which is found in plants. Schoenbein's acid mixture added nitro groups, NO2, to the cellulose molecules, giving them an instant supply of oxygen, 
which will burn rapidly and spontaneously under high heat. To this day, chemists incorporate many nitro groups into explosives molecules to increase their explosive power. In this case, the new explosive material was called gun cotton. Militaries tried to use it as a smokeless oxidant to shoot projectiles, and this required factories to make gun cotton. The problem is, as Schoenbein first found, gun cotton is highly explosive and destroyed a fair number of factories during the mid-19th century. The Austrian government in particular was trying out gun cotton, but their arms storehouses blew up and the government canceled their trials in 1867. Another problem is that gun cotton's speed of burning was too fast to be practical. Therefore, chemists occupied themselves with attempting to reduce gun cotton's spontaneous explosiveness and slow its burning rate into something manageable. Eventually, the French succeeded. In the early 1880s, in Paris, chemist Paul Vieille created a mixture of 68% insoluble nitrocellulose, 30% soluble nitrocellulose, that is, in a gelatin in alcohol, ether, and amyl alcohol, and 2% wax. The whole shebang, if I may use the term, was rolled into thin, dark, greenish-gray sheets that were dried and flaked. Originally, it was named Poudre V after Vieille. To subvert German spies, it was renamed Poudre B. Poudre B was the first practical smokeless gunpowder and was unveiled in 1884. The French military began using it in 1886 and other great powers thereafter. The French army even created a new rifle, Lebel Model 1886, with an 8mm bore to exploit Poudre B. It was improved over various generations and used up through the 1960s. Meanwhile, the Italian chemist Ascanio Sobrero, who had worked a bit with gun cotton with the French chemist Théophile Pelouse and studied under Liebig, was now a professor of chemistry at the University of Turin. A couple of years after Schoenbein discovered gun cotton, Sobrero found another explosive compound in 1847. So frightened was he about this compound that he kept his research secret for a year and then published it. He even spoke out strongly against using it as an explosive. He first named it pyroglycerin in an 1849 article entitled Sopra alcuni nuovi composti fulminanti ottenuti col mezzo dell'acido nitrico sulle sostanze organiche vegetali in the journal Memorie della Reale Accademia delle Scienze di Torino. Not long thereafter, the compound was renamed nitroglycerin. And, as you can guess by the name, it has three nitro groups, ready and able to oxidize fast. Among nitroglycerin's initial uses was in construction as a blasting material, very helpful in leveling track beds for the new railroads popping up all over the world. But, like gun cotton, nitroglycerin was spontaneously explosive. One particular instance that caught worldwide attention was when a shipping crate of nitroglycerin sent from New York 
was opened by workmen using a chisel at the Wells Fargo building in San Francisco on April 16, 1866. The crate exploded, destroying the building and killing over a dozen people. Here is an extract from the Placer Herald newspaper. On Monday 16th in San Francisco at 15 minutes past 1 o'clock p.m., an explosion took place in the storeroom back of Wells Fargo & Company's building in G.W. Bell's assay office adjoining California Street, which demolished everything with a circuit of 40 or 50 feet, including the whole interior of Bell's assay building, the storeroom and west portion of Wells Fargo & Company's building, the back portion of the Union Club rooms, and other apartments in the vicinity. The explosion was powerful as to shake the earth like an earthquake for a circuit of a quarter of a mile. Every window in California Street between Montgomery and Kearney was demolished, and panes of glass were shattered ever as far as 3rd Street, a distance of half a mile. For some time after the explosion, it was impossible to tell the cause of the calamity, some asserting that it was a barrel of acid in the assay office, others said it was a steam boiler in the rear of the office, and others that it was some kind of explosive material stored in the yard of Wells, Fargo, and Company. It has since been ascertained to have been caused by blasting oil, or nitroglycerin, a new explosive five times more powerful in its effects than powder. A box containing this liquid had arrived by steamer from the east, and when landed upon the wharf, was found to be in a leaking condition. It had been shipped as general merchandise, and none were aware of the dangerous contents of the box. Around this time, a young Swedish chemist, the son of an entrepreneurial family, went to Pelouse's laboratory to learn about this new nitroglycerin. The family was involved with the Russian government as a supplier of underwater mines and other military items. The young chemist himself spent a bit of time in the USA in the early 1850s, learning under John Erickson, inventor of the screw propeller, and later built the ironclad ship Monitor. After the Crimean War ended, the easy money dried up, and the family decided to try manufacturing nitroglycerin for construction. They built a plant opening for business in 1862. This young chemist was named Alfred Nobel, and it was this Nobel family's nitroglycerin that exploded in San Francisco. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, nitroglycerin is highly explosive, and the Nobel factory itself succumbed, killing Alfred's youngest brother, Emil. Alfred decided to try to find a safer method of manufacturing nitroglycerin. An initial success of his was the blasting cap, which stored the nitroglycerin in a container stoppered with a wooden plug, filled with black powder as the fuse. But the family explosive factory was still a very dangerous place. Apparently, to prevent workers from dozing off and losing focus, causing fatal accidents, they had to sit on one-legged stools. The synthesis and manufacture was performed in wooden sheds, separated from one another by banks of earth. Accidents continued. Nobel was cleaning up after one of these explosions using a diatomaceous fine sand called kizilgur and discovered that the nitroglycerin mixed with the sand formed a putty. The putty was not sensitive to shock or heat, but his blasting caps would ignite the putty. So, in 1867, 
he patented this material under the name dynamite. Dynamite became an immediate success, and Nobel became a rich man. By his death, he had manufacturing sites in 20 different countries, but he lived most of his later life in Paris, where he had a low reputation as an explosives manufacturer. In 1889, James Dewar and Frederick Abel finally created a safer version of gun cotton for the British government in response to poudre B. This concoction was 58% nitroglycerin, 37% gun cotton, and 5% petroleum jelly, plus acetone to make the stuff into a squishy form. The squishy form was extruded like spaghetti into thin cords, so was given the name cordite. And then Alfred Nobel sued Dewar and Abel for patent infringement because Nobel's patent mentioned nitrocellulose, quote, of the well-known soluble kind, unquote. By 1895, the case reached the British House of Lords, but Nobel lost because his patent mentioned camphor and required alcohol, neither of which were in Dewar and Abel's method. We shall return to cordite in the early 20th century for the Great War. In 1888, Nobel's brother died, but a French newspaper headlined with Le Marchand de la Mort est mort. The Merchant of Death is dead, confusing the brother with Alfred himself. Alfred was upset that his reputation was solely in dangerous materials. So Alfred, who never married, decided to write a will, leaving his fortune to the establishment of a series of intellectual prizes in order that he wouldn't be remembered as a dealer of death. The prizes originally were for chemistry, physics, medicine or physiology, literature, and peace. Many scholars believe the Peace Prize was because of his friend, Austrian author and peace activist Bertha von Suttner, and her influence on Nobel. Nobel also had serious heart trouble, for which his doctors prescribed nitroglycerin. How nitroglycerin got to be used as a medication for heart problems is interesting in and of itself. It seems that scientists handling nitroglycerin when it was first announced found that they often got headaches. Sobrero himself did animal experiments and discovered nitroglycerin to be a vasodilator. Soon thereafter, Constantine Herring reported his use of the compound for headaches. But for cardiac uses, nitroglycerin wasn't used until the 1870s, when William Morell reported using it in 1879 to relieve angina. It was renamed trinitrin, or glyceryl trinitrate, so that patients wouldn't be scared off from it, in the same way that nuclear magnetic resonance was renamed magnetic resonance imaging a century later to avoid frightening patients with the word nuclear. Nobel died in 1896, and his will was only made public afterwards. As he wrote in his will, The prizes for physics and chemistry are to be awarded by the Swedish Academy of Sciences, that for physiological or medical achievements by the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, that for literature by the Academy in Stockholm, and that for champions of peace by a committee of five persons to be selected by the Norwegian Storting. It is my express wish that when awarding the prizes, no consideration be given to nationality, but that the prize be awarded to the worthiest person, whether or not they are Scandinavian.
The first Nobel Prizes, as per his will, were awarded in 1901. Many of the chemists I describe, especially as we move into the 20th century, have received a Nobel Prize. But explosives and warfare continued to be researched in the later 19th century. For example, remember picric acid, the yellow crystals in the episode about dyes. Chevreul determined that it was acidic in 1809, and Dumas named it after the Greek word picros, bitter. In 1868, Italian chemist Luigi Borlinetto mixed potassium chlorate and picric acid as an explosive. But like gun cotton, it was too sensitive for practical use. Then Borlinetto tried potassium dichromate, but that wasn't accepted either. German-British chemist Hermann Sprengel trotted out picric acid again in 1873 for use as an explosive, which the French decided to adopt in a variation by 1886. That is, they fabricated bursting charges from picric acid and gun cotton. Called melanite, and used them for artillery shells. Then the British copied the French, but called their version lidite after its place of manufacture, the town of Lid. By 1894, the Czarist Russian military got in on the action as well. The American government took up the charge, if you will, by 1906 with a related compound, ammonium picrate, which they called dunite or explosive D. Named for U.S. Army Major Beverly Dunn, a particular downside to using picric acid was its reaction with the shells themselves, by which I mean the casings. The result was metal picrates, which are far more sensitive to shock and temperature. Often the shell casings were coated with tin, which doesn't react with picric acid, or an oily substance called asphaltum. These coatings helped with the shock, unless the casing was jarred and the coating scratched away. Nothing, however, prevents the metal picrates from temperature effects, and eventually governments stopped using picric acid. Picric acid as a shell charge was extensively used in World War One, but we will examine the Great War, probably the first truly chemical war, in a future episode. I mentioned one more explosive invented in the 19th century, and that is TNT, short for trinitroglycerin. Again, with the trinitro name, you can guess it has three nitro groups and therefore packs a punch. The compound was first described in 1863 by a German chemist, Julius Wilbrandt. It is much less sensitive than other explosives from the 19th century. And was even classified as not an explosive when considered for manufacture and storage under the British Explosives Act 1875. Only in 1891 was TNT found to be explosive by another German, Karl Heusermann. As a liquid, it is safe to pour into shell casings. The German army started using TNT for artillery shells in 1902. Its advantage is that TNT-bearing armor-piercing shells explode after smashing through ships, causing more damage. The British began using TNT in 
Of course, TNT also became famous from mid-20th century American cartoons. In our next episode, we begin to look at research into the structure of atoms and gradually crawl into the 20th century. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.